Hi, I'm Sam Cowan. I'm your host of the Smarter Coaching Podcast. Uh, On this podcast, I seek to bring in coaches, sports scientists, or others involved in coaching primarily endurance athletes, although we will delve into team sports from time to time. If you have a suggestion for a future guest, you can email me at smartercoachingllc at gmail.com. You can also visit the website, smartercoachingllc.com, where you can uh, access old episodes. Please, I ask of you to subscribe to this and leave a review wherever you get your podcast. So with that, let me introduce you to today's guest. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining me on today's Smarter Coaching Podcast, where I'm joined by Andy Coggin. Uh, Andy is a PhD in exercise physiology who currently works at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. It's quite a mouthful. And on today's podcast, we talk about his life as a bike racer and a scientist and also got into how he got interested in looking at power as a metric for uh, cycling performance. Talk a little bit about some of the history of other intensity measures and kind of some of the early days of uh, coaching with power. And Andy contributed greatly to the USA Cycling Power Seminars and also the Level 2 clinics. He was the first to really come up with the framework for the sports sciences offered in that clinic, or at least was uh, during my time at USA Cycling up through 2012. So uh, let me turn it over now to my interview with Dr. Andy Coggin. Hey everyone, welcome to the uh, Smarter Coaching Podcast. And I'm really excited to have an old friend and a, a good friend too. Old only in the sense that we go back a ways, not in terms of age. Um, Dr. Andy Coggin. And Andy is uh, was one of the first uh, pioneers in the area of uh, using power meters to measure performance and training and some early writings. And later on worked uh, with me at USA Cycling, putting on some coaching clinics and, uh, and the power clinics. And course co-author in the book with Hunter Allen and we'll talk a little bit about that as we get later into it but I really brought Andy on also to talk about just in general some of the history of looking at workloads um, Andy uh, bike racer and scientist and and uh, has done some practical and applied things along the way in terms of this area that's a bit of a hobby and vocation and passion for his so Andy welcome to the podcast Oh, thank you, Sam. It's good to catch up. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Hey, how about a little start? How about we start with just your background as a bike racer and then how that transitioned into you getting interested in exercise science? Well, I'll I'll try and keep it brief. Uh, I started out as a runner, and then when I was in junior high school, started riding a bike, and that led me into bicycle racing. And then when I was a junior in high school, I had a club mate who gave me one of the older exercise physiology textbooks, and right then and there, I declared that's what I wanted to study for for college was uh, exercise physiology. So I kept uh, racing up until about 10 years ago. So from 1975 to 2008, uh, raced more years than I didn't. <clears throat> but you know, going from the sport into science. I was fortunate. I did my undergraduate and my master's at Ball State. So I was actually introduced to the notion of power-based training by Dave Costell way back in 1970. It would have been spring of 1978 that he devised a short, you know, couple uh, months uh, ergometer-based training program, which was just oriented around power. So the idea has been around for a long period of time. I kind of skipped over the whole heart rate based era because of my focus on power and laboratory studies, et cetera. And then the world, uh, the technology eventually caught up around 1999, uh, mid 90s when we had on bike power meters became available and affordable for you know the masses. Yeah, and that became a really important part of this because it, it's one thing to be able to measure something in laboratory, but to be able to get data out in in the wild, if you will, and do what people are, and look at what people are actually doing, not just what you as the scientist puts them on the ergometer to say you're going to do this protocol and we're going to look at what's happening. It was a was a really big deal. Um, yeah, definitely some surprises there. You know, it's sort of a two way street. What we learn in the lab can be applied out on the bike, but uh, until you actually are out in the field and you don't really know exactly what's happening and 
it's difficult to replicate it exactly in a laboratory. So having the field data really has a, uh, has had an impact, at least on my way of thinking. <clears throat> well, I think on lots of ways of people thinking, I mean, just now in terms of, you know, people share files back and forth and, you know, can look at massive data sets for the people who are smart enough to know how to do that. That does not include me. Uh, who can look at that and start to figure out, you know, what, what are people actually doing out there? And, I, you know, I've spent, an, I've spent enough time in a lab to have a feel for it. And I'll, I'll, my take was always that the athletes and coaches were oftentimes ahead of the scientists. We came in behind sometimes to try to figure out why does that work? And they had the luxury of doing experiments that where they weren't worried about controlling for things and just to see what would happen. So um, it's kind of a fun when you can get a scientist uh, who also looks at you know the practical application and have those two because some scientists sadly are just in the lab all the time and don't get out in the real world to see what happens. I feel sorry right. for those scientists. All right, so you wanted to talk about monitoring of workload. Yeah, so I kind of thought as a as a prelude to lead into power, and, and you kind of mentioned you skipped the heart rate generation in there, but we've. You know, measuring intensity has always been a challenge, and we've had several methods over the years. Um, you know, rating a perceived exertion, which I'm still a big fan of as one metric to look at. But we had, you know, heart rate. We had pedometers. Maybe kind of a little bit of a walk through history, because I know you are, you know, interested in the history of uh, exercise science as well as what we're doing now. Maybe some of these. Uh, attempts to look at intensity and also the downsides to them or the, or the limitations, let's say, to them. Yeah, you, you, you know, I can't cast myself back before 1900 and actually speak and talk to, speak, well, talk to and speak for the physiologists back then. But certainly in a laboratory type setting, the ability to measure uh, power output, metabolic rate, heart rate, et cetera, has been around for you know, maybe 150 years. And even in the 1920s or so, there were portable VO2 systems, large backpack size, but you could actually measure metabolic rate, that is VO2, oxygen uptake in the field. But again, the constraints here are more methodological. So while in the laboratory, everything has been focused around primarily VO2 and also external work rate. So if you study people on a psychrogometer, it's power output. If you're a runner and you're studying runners all the time, you tend to think in terms of you know, treadmill speed uh, and grade, et cetera. Uh, Borg developed his scales of perceived exertion in the 1970s. And so while you know, humans have had an innate ability to sense their perceived effort for, you know, ever since uh, evolution placed us on this planet, uh, you could pin it back to the 1970s where we had a scale that was standardized for uh, saying just how hard something felt it would be. The big question, or I guess the big changes that are relevant here is how it has filtered out from that laboratory-based setting to the real world. And as a cyclist, I can remember when uh, Hure introduced their first uh, speedometer that uh, had a little plastic wheel that rubbed on your tire. It was the first one that serious cyclists would consider slapping on their bike, and that would have been in the 1970s. But speed isn't a very good metric for cyclists because we're so impacted by environmental conditions and terrain, et cetera. So by and large, until Polar came along, people relied upon either, you know, how many miles they rode, estimated how much time they rode, and how hard it felt, even if they weren't rating it on org scale. Nonetheless, they did have a concept of how hard they felt it was. Then along came the polar heart rate monitor in the oh, early 1980s, I guess. It started uh, being sold and was reliable. And so this gives you a measure of exercise intensity. Uh, at least aerobic exercise intensity, that uh, while it's imperfect, at least it is objective. And so that certainly impacted a lot of how people approach training and how they quantify things. Now, like I said, I kind of skipped over the whole heart rate monitor era. And I've often made the argument that if the power meters had become available before heart rate monitors, 
people would tend to think a lot differently than they tend to, and they wouldn't place heart rate quite so high. Related to that, we also had the whole era of lactate measurement. Of course, people have been measuring blood lactate or muscle lactate all the way back in the 1800s and you know, applying it to quantification of exercise intensity into the early 1900s. But it really became popular in the 1970s and the 1980s uh, to become at least a lab-based measure of somebody's uh, exercise intensity, changes in fitness, etc. Then along came uh, Uli Schrober with his SRM, and I don't know when the very first ones actually started making it out of his hands to other people, but certainly by the 96 Olympics, the uh, USA cycling team had them. Uh, team EDS, which was a corporate-sponsored track cycling team based out of Texas, had them. By 2000, of course, the Australian Institute of Sport had been using them in the build-up to the Sydney Games. I first had my opportunity to use one in 1997, courtesy of Dr. Jim Martin, who's now at the University of Utah. Played with it for a few months, and of course, being a cyclist and a numbers guy, you know, I was salivating all over it, but couldn't afford one for myself. So it really wasn't until PowerTap uh, became available at a much lower price point that it really took off. And my wife and I were actually discussing exactly what year they became available. I was a, a beta tester for PowerTap, and uh, I think I was the very first one to ever uh, externally validate one because the very day I got it, I stayed up till like 2 o'clock in the morning and then posted to Rec Bicycles Racing, my validation against my uh, ergometer I train on at home. Um, but again, I was talking with my wife and I think in 1999 is when I got mine. She bought hers in January of 2000. So she was very much an early adopter as well. And of course, this brought it you know, to a point price-wise that it became accessible to a large number of people. And then that led to, and you know this history, so interrupt me if you want to, you know, <laughs> If I skip over anything you think is important. But, well, I, know, this, I, I was going to jump in here just to say that um, – when I worked for USA Cycling and, and my early, my first, well, when I first started working, I was a sports science manager, was not actually involved in coaching education. And one of the things that we did with Jeff Broker at the United States Olympic Committee was we took a bunch of SRMs and power taps and put them on bikes and wheels. And they had a dynamometer in the lab at the USOC. And we kind of, we did an external validation. We never published it or never did anything. We just wanted to see out of the box how, how good were these and I think we had 10 power taps, and one of them was 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 way off of what the dynamometer was saying. The other ones were like, I mean, within a few percentage of what the SRM was giving us and what the dynamometer was giving us. We And we kind of looked at each other and went, wow, that's pretty dang amazing. This, I think it was 500 bucks or so at the time. Yeah. That's pretty like that. darn good for what, you know, what you're getting. If you think about it, these are strain gauges, the same thing you can, you know, you could buy in a uh, sharper image in a you know, $30 <laughs> game. Uh, you could go to, uh, can I mention commercial? What's the, uh, the inexpensive tool place? Harbor Freight. I have a little uh, balance that measures you know, masses down to, you know, milligram quantities that I bought yep. for $13. It's strain gauges, and it's incredibly accurate and precise. Yeah. So... The technology and the componentry isn't the cost. It's you know getting it to where it's reliable in the kind of environment which you uh, wish to operate it, and then economies of scale, of course. Yep, yep. But continue on. Uh, the the trip down memory lane is a good one. You know, so people started, of course, talking about things that interest them, and I was uh, one of the people who talked about it a lot on rec bicycle racing because these are the things that interest me: exercise, numbers, cycling, etc. Uh, and then a fellow by the name of Quan Lowe, E-W-A-N Lowe, uh, started the wattage list that was originally hosted on Topica.com. And so the discussion kind of jumped over there. And this became the nexus of uh, many of the evolutions and then eventually led to the famous or infamous Philly conference, which was 2002, 2001. Oh. Yeah, God, I got to go back and look. But you're, yeah, I, I want to say 01. 01. 
Yeah, but I'm going to check in the show notes and double check because I always forget. The years run together, especially when you start talking about now, you know, 17, 18 years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I do want to get your impression of that one because I, I, I put that together and had you and Dean Golick and Alan Lim come in and speak. And the, the one thing that I remember from that was we were in a cramped room. It was incredibly hot and stuffy. And yet I don't remember anyone really complaining about it because the information that you guys delivered was so good that it kind of offset the cramped quarters that we were in. It's probably the worst coaching clinic from that standpoint I ever put together at USA Cycling. Um, so anyway, go ahead. Well, it was at that meeting actually that I first met Hunter Allen and uh, Kevin Williams. Uh, you know, Hunter saw the coming wave. He's very entrepreneurial. Kevin Williams had been riding with a power tap and Hunter was coaching him and they literally went off during the lunch break and decided based on, you know, the presentations, the conversation, I mean, I don't want to make Hunter sound egotistical, but he looked around and he said, okay, well, Joe Friel is known as the guy who wrote the book and, you know, Lance and uh, Chris Carmichael is known as the guy who coached Lance Armstrong and, he and Kevin realized that there was a need for software devoted specifically to analyzing the kind of data generated by bicycle power meters. So they sat down at lunch and you know, Hunter said, OK, we're going to people who make the software. And they mapped out the software on a napkin uh, at that meeting. So that was uh, June of whatever year, 01 or 02. Uh, so that's where I had first met Hunter and Kevin. By that fall, I was getting occasional emails from Hunter. Uh, they would share screen captures of what they were working on, ask questions, ask for input, et cetera. And our collaborations kind of evolved from there. Well, and, and from what I remember, and Hunter is going to be a, a, a guest as well on, on the, uh, the podcast later on. But I also remember Hunter telling the story of he was sitting next to Kevin. And, and you're going through some of the stuff we'll talk about in a minute in terms of you know, IF and all this stuff. And, and Kevin keeps leaning and goes, I can write a code. I can write a program. They'll do that. And then you would say something else. And Kevin, went, I can write a program. They'll do that. And so all throughout that, it, it kept, Kevin kept realizing that I, I can take this, what you were, what you were doing, I think probably in Excel spreadsheets probably, and really make that happen in a, you know, much easier way than um, the rolling averages that you have to do in Excel that, you know, aren't overly right. difficult, but, you know, make it so that it's much more user-friendly for somebody who doesn't have that knowledge. Yeah, quite, quite literally what Hunter said was, you know, he wants to avoid two-step Excel macro dance. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yes, yes. Cut yeah. the data over here, paste it over there, you know, apply a macro, do this, do that, and, you know, after 12 steps, you finally get your answer. <laughs> yes, yes. So, um, fantastic. Yeah, that's, uh, I, that, that's one of the happier moments looking back on that day of of having really good people in that room and i i wish i'd kept the roster of everyone who was in that room but i do remember looking around going there's some really good people in here and people who went off and uh really you know took that message that you guys gave and uh dean golick had been the sports science person for project 96 where they use the srms and alan lim had done some work with uh srms up at, when he was a doctoral student up at cu boulder and you were basically the three people that I kind of, I knew you from rec.bicycle.racing for several years, this old Usenet group. Now the young people are going to go back and have to type in and look up what a Usenet group was and they're going to laugh when they come across it. But, um, but you know, you guys seem to have a pretty good feel for what was going on in this area and no one else had ever put on a power seminar that I know of anyway. And I, I got to give a shout out to Mark Fazeski, our friend too, who, actually planned the idea in my head to to do this one and then it was up to me to figure out where to go from there so um i I, i'm glad i played my little part in in helping to bring it to the masses and now it's so mainstream uh as part of that but anyway all right quick pat myself on the back because this is not about me um how about how about sharing some of the early what your early thoughts were on power and how you had you taken the concept of a banister's trump kind of in a that used heart rate and applied this to power and weight maybe walk people through a little bit of that history and background on on those uh in that area 
Well, again, I got to tip my hat to Hunter in that he's he's uh, visionary in the sense he's you know, looking well down the road and can recognize where there might be opportunities. So again, he was sharing this stuff with me. You know, we were kicking things back and forth. And then it would have been the spring, I think of 2002, he calls me. And I always summarize it, uh, the conversation very quickly is, is basically he said, Andy, there's got to be more there, there. His point was that if you're recording what somebody can do every second throughout every single workout, there had to be a way of leveraging this data in the big picture in order to better uh, prepare athletes, periodize their training, et cetera. So when he made this suggestion, I immediately thought of the work that Bannister had done mathematically modeling the relationship between training and performance and hadn't really considered it until, you know, Hunter made his request. But then I saw uh, the connection and set out to uh, trying to figure out a way of applying the lessons from Bannister's impulse response model in a way that could be applicable to real world where you don't have the opportunity to test a person uh, very frequently under uh, very controlled conditions. One of the issues that arises out of that, of course, you know, Bannister's model links the uh, training uh, to performance, where training is quantified in terms of TRIMPS, training impulse, and his original TRIMP score is based on heart rate. So I wanted to have a power-based, an objective, uh, output-based measurement of exercise performance uh, as my metric. And that then made me realize one of the issues is the fact that power is highly variable, sometimes referred to as stochastic or random, or it's, it's not random. You choose to coast around the corner and your power goes to zero. You know, you choose to stand up on the pedals and give a burst of power to get back on the wheel in front of you. But nonetheless, it looks like a seismograph. The, high, the power tends to be, while cycling outdoors, tends to be highly variable. And, you know, heart rate, because it lags, smooths over these uh, short duration variations, whereas power is essentially instantaneous. So the question became, how do you uh, take that into consideration? As well, we know that the physiological responses to exercise, uh, while not are not instantaneous, but they're also not linearly related to exercise intensity. So the desire for what had, has become the performance manager chart uh, necessi- necessitated the development of a power-based training stress score, and the desire for a training stress score necessitated the development of normalized power. As the way they rolled out in the world, though, as it turns out, the normalized power algorithm was sufficiently accurate that has uses onto its own right, such as estimating your functional threshold power. So the way the world saw these things was normalized power. Uh, It's a way of uh, adjusting or correcting for variations in uh, exercise intensity, taking into consideration the time course and nonlinear relationship of physiological responses. Which then leads into TSS, and then a few years after that, we revealed the performance manager chart. But it was actually the desire for what is now the performance manager chart that drove the development of TSS, that drove the development of normalized power. I, I like about 2006 or so. <laughs> yeah, I, I I like the 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 idea that we wanted to get here, but then in order to get there, oh, we got to create this, got to create create this reminds me kind of i've been reading a little bit about the uh you know the, the race to the moon kind of thing and how okay we, we want to get to the moon but in order to do that we've got to do all these other things for, for we can get there and it's almost uh not maybe not quite as big of an endeavor as that but uh but certainly along those lines um and so just give a you know, quick definition of the normalized power, TSS, and what they are, and, and the other ones you've thrown out there, and what they were designed to do, and, and what they what they provide that the athlete who's using a power meter. Normalized power is an algorithm that essentially serves as a filter that it both smooths and weights the power based on physiological considerations, 
And the goal, at least, is to provide from highly variable power data an estimate of the equivalent steady state power output. Training stress score, then, is a global metric applied to individual training sessions or races that tries to pin a single number on the stress that was applied as a predictor of the resultant physiological strain. And it takes into consideration both the duration of the workout, but also the intensity relative to somebody's muscular metabolic fitness, because that is the primary determinant of exercise performance and physiological demand. Uh, sufficient, do you think? Yeah. And of course, one of the big ones early on, the functional threshold power, um, define that for folks. Uh, an estimate of the power uh, equal to maximal metabolic steady state. Now, you have to realize that there is no true such thing as a maximal metabolic steady state. Even resting metabolic rate can only be maintained for the duration of your life, right? <laughs> if you Hopefully have somebody time, yeah. you know, only uh, 40% of their VO2 max, something that can be maintained for many hours. You know, this would be a, a day laborer in their, in their all-day shift or something like that. Even under those conditions, there will be a gradual upward drift in oxygen consumption, mm -hmm. gradual drift in heart rate, etc. So we're never in a true absolute steady state. Nonetheless, the rate at which things change over time is much more rapid above some particular uh, narrow range of intensities than it is below. So people frequently refer to this as threshold when it's not that black and white. It's more of a kink or bend in a curve. But for convenience, we can call it threshold and try and pin a single number on it. Uh, people are very familiar with the notion of a lactate threshold. But in point of fact, what coaches and athletes tend to perceive as their threshold is significantly above the point at which blood lactate levels first begin to increase. Mm -hmm. It's actually closer to the point at which uh, blood lactate levels have to increase uh, constantly over time. So you really sort of have to think in terms of two dimensions here, not only in terms of exercise intensity, but also duration. So at very low intensities, there's no changes in blood lactate. At slightly higher intensities, there might be a, a modest bump up in blood lactate, and then it can return back to resting levels. At higher intensity still, blood lactate level will, will be elevated over resting, but they'll reach a plateau. And then if you continue to increase the intensity, eventually you reach a, a maximal lactate steady state, the highest exercise intensity at which blood lactate levels are constant or quasi-constant for a prolonged period of time. Mm -hmm. Well, as it turns out, maximal lactate steady state also corresponds very closely to a whole host of other physiological responses that exhibit threshold-like behavior, uh, changes in plasma catecholamine levels, levels, changes in ventilation, changes in glucose concentration, changes in uh, electromyographic activity, you know, yada, 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 which we routinely sum up in, as physiologists and call lactate threshold thinking conceptually, mm -hmm. or even just threshold. Um, so, or as I like to think of it as, you know, maximal metabolic steady state. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and threshold, lactate threshold is, is a, is an incredibly good predictor of endurance performance. Yes, because it, and again, it comes back to while we, our heart has to be, uh, Stroke volume has to be high enough. We have to deliver the oxygen. We have to breathe. But the ultimate limiting factor, on, at least in endurance performance activities, are metabolic events in the exercising muscle. In particular, your ability to balance aerobic ATP production with ATP demand, which then dictates in the context of you know, habitual diet, fuel availability, et cetera, the mix of substrates that you oxidize, how quickly you run out of muscle glycogen and plasma glucose, or how quickly, if the intensity is high enough, you accumulate metabolites that interfere with uh, muscle contractile functions such as protons, or the rate at which you deplete your uh, 
phosphocreatin stores and accumulate uh, inorganic phosphate, the diprotonated form of which directly interferes with contractile machinery, etc. But you know, this this is the point at which uh, <laughs> coaches at the clinics eyes would glaze over. Yes. And the point I would always make at those clinics, you know, for the for those whose eyes are glazing over right now, is you know, to a large extent, these details are not critical for a coach to know. I'm going right. to digress here for no, a moment, no. but you know, a coach wears many hats. They have to be an organizer. They have to be a motivator in a sport like cycling. If they're at least a hands-on, you know, on-site coach, maybe they're actually teaching bike handling skills, helping with positioning, etc. It's far more than just writing the training program. So you really only have to have uh, an in-depth understanding of exercise physiology to be a good coach, assuming you handle all the other duties you know, adequately or perhaps superbly. Um, you really only have to have an in-depth understanding if you want to sort of push beyond the status quo. Yeah, if you want to be on cutting edge, if you want to try and, you know, all these uh, new ideas on your athletes, then, yeah, it's helpful to have a good handle on exercise physiology. But you could be a phenomenal coach, phenomenal motivator, phenomenal at selecting talent, what have you, and just be following in the footsteps of what everybody's always done in terms of training, and your athletes could prove to be highly successful. Yeah, I I, I agree. I think the the – being a coach is very much a journalist kind of thing, and I, you know, it, it's an artful application of science, which I think I heard Hunter say the first time ever, years and years ago. And my argument for, and and one of the reasons that I emphasize the sports science uh, component at USA Cycling was, I just wanted to be able to turn on the bullcrap detector and the coaches sitting in the room that if they read or saw something, they go, wait a minute, you know you know either you or one of the other Andes or Steve McGregor who taught those courses you know they could think back so you know it's like one of them said something about this that make me maybe think this is not quite accurate or that you know they're they're blowing something out of proportion here that some supplements do increase the VO2 max by 30 percent by just taking it kind of thing and more to to make them a critical consumer of information than worrying about the you know what happens to you know phosphocreatine uh, breakdown and how fast does it break down and do that stuff. Although we did cover that, I think, relatively well in the clinics. And with your help, you designed that first curriculum for the level two clinics and um, to, to give them that at least some baseline knowledge. And some people really got into it, really went deep. Others came into the room with a, a decent amount of knowledge, but we kind of made the assumption that people are coming into being cycling coaches without a heavy science background and that was largely the case um from you know one of the people who walked into that room and i felt we owed it to them to give them at least a little bit of a grounding uh in that area yeah yeah i i with you very much there in terms of you call the bs detector but you know that's what stands out about the the best scientists i think is that they are by nature skeptical Yes. I mean, you can be overly skeptical, but you can also be overly gullible. Yes. Um, so, yeah, having some grounding, certainly, uh, again, it may make you immune to all the latest fads, such as, uh, well, to pick on one, I just saw a case study published today of a triathlete who, for about nine months, a world-class Ironman distance triathlete, uh, adopted a, a low-carbohydrate, high-fat, ketotic diet in hopes of solving their GI problems yeah. during long races. And this is uh, Anisio Mujica, um, yep. the author, I don't know if you saw it. But of course, as you would expect from exercise physiology perspective, where carbohydrate is king, his performance, this triathlete's performance went in the tank and was in the tank until he started, you know, gave up on the experiment, started eating carbs again, and boom, his performance was <laughs> Shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if he had a stronger understanding of exercise physiology in the first place, he might have been immune to this uh, fad of, you know, uh, avoiding carbohydrate as if it's poison. Yeah. Or if he had just seen, you know, Louise Burke's paper with the race walkers from Australia, I think that would have uh, been a good indication of, of what was going on yeah. there as well. Um, uh, big fan of that, for sure. 
Um, I, I want to swing back around for a second because we we kind of we talked a little bit about heart rate. You said you had skipped it, uh, and and certainly I, I think in the cycling community, power is definitely king. But what what makes heart rate? Um, what were some limitations using heart rate as a measure of exercise intensity, especially out in the wild, if you will? Well, for aerobic intensities, sustained efforts, it isn't uh, a terrible problem. But if you're talking about any sort of interval type training or shorter, there is the fact that heart rate lags behind changes in effort. So if you want to do a VO2 max interval, and your coach says, you know, this is your target heart rate. Well, it's going to take you several minutes and possibly an interval or two to actually get up to that point. And people who don't realize this will then overcompensate, raise their actual intensity to try and drive their heart rate up sooner and may burn themselves out prematurely in a workout. Uh, so for short duration work, the, the temporal lag uh, can be problematic. Uh, it's also uh, susceptible to extraneous influences. People refer to the effect of you know, fear or caffeine. Uh, exercise is a, a fight or flight uh, reaction anyway. So I don't know how much impact that will have, but uh, your blood volume or your plasma volume has a very large influence on your heart rate. So if you are lacking sleep, which screws with your body's fluid regulation, you drink too much alcohol, if you're just stressed in general, you can be uh, hypohydrated and your heart rate will be elevated as a, as a response. I'll tell, you know, conversely, for reasons that we don't fully understand yet, if you're uh, excessively fatigued, your heart rate response will be suppressed. And so if you're trying to achieve the same exercise intensity, you find that you know you actually have to exercise harder to get to the same heart rate, or perhaps you you know, everybody's familiar with this. I couldn't get my heart rate up, right? Um, I mean, I once the performance manager became available and I had power data, and he's an artful application of science, it's, uh, <laughs> uh, it was Dave Harris who said the body responds like a Swiss watch. You only, you know, you just have to know how to wind it. But I could go to races after figuring out the proper pattern to follow you know, leading into a race, I could go into a race and, you know, be confident that I would be ready to go. And one of the signs of that, back when I was still wearing a heart rate monitor, is that my heart rate response was a bit like my old Honda Civic SI. It was, you know, <laughs> free revving, right? You do your warm up, your heart rate would come up really quickly, your legs would feel great, you knew that you were on a good day. Um, what was Equally fun, you know, if you're the sports psych was when you, you know, go through your warm up and you don't feel so good and your heart rate is suppressed is then you have to ask yourself the question, okay, so how am I going to win today? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, start thinking about your tactics, your teammates, you know, et cetera, from there. Um, so it's a, uh, comes back to cycling being the chess match on wheels, but uh, having the power data allowed me back when I was still racing that I knew uh, how to assure that you know I'd be ready for each and every race that I wanted to be ready for all right so uh, you know there is the, also the issue of cardiac drift over time mm -hmm. especially in the heat but even in cool environments even if uh, metabolic rates not changing that much even if cardiac outputs being maintained Again, as I teach it to the undergraduate exercise physiologists, picture a massive sympathetically mediated vasoconstriction everywhere in the body that's overridden by vasodilatory influences within the exercising muscles. So but it's hard to clamp down everywhere. Over time, your skin blood flow is going to go up. Blood flow to your gut is going to tend to creep up. So you're no longer going to be able to redirect the flow to the muscle as well, fill the heart as well. So the only option then if stroke volume isn't being maintained is to elevate heart rate. So even in you know, a temperate conditions in the laboratory uh, at a moderate intensity, heart rate can creep up you know, 5, 8, 10 beats per minute over the course of a couple hours, even in somebody who's well hydrated with a fan on them. Now if you know, throw heat stress in there and you know, it happens uh, in minutes rather than hours. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and obviously, you know, the external temperature in there makes a big difference, and you know, that can change. I live in Colorado. Um, it's 70 degrees one day while I run. It was 35 degrees the other day while I was running and trying to use my heart rate data if I were collecting heart rate data any longer. It, it, it's a mess. I got to figure out, well, what does that really mean? I mean, you know, it was 35 degrees warmer when I did the run or workout than it was, you know, the last time I did this one. And it it does make it complicated. Sometimes I would look at it and just go, well, it was just warmer. That's why my heart rate was higher. And But then I'm walking away going, I don't really know what that means at the end of the day. Um, I can look back and go, it was, it, you know, it was hard, but it was hard because it was also warmer and wasn't acclimated to the warmer temperatures yet. Um, one of the downsides of living in a place with such odd weather. Uh, running a snowstorm one day, you're uh, worried about getting skin cancer the next day uh, with that. Um, kind of the, the heart rate stuff, I'll swing back to power and I, I guess maybe give folks some caveats about the misuses of power as a metric or power meters. I mean, you know, I, I can remember people falling in love with the power meter and just sometimes just looking at the screen and me as someone who realizes that there's an athlete who provided that data to you and is on the other end of that and a little bit of my more psychology background coming through perhaps on this and my physiology background. So maybe caution, you know, some words of wisdom there for folks who, um, you know, are using power as a as an important metric. Yeah, and I would have to preface these remarks by saying I'm not a coach. So self-coached using power data, but obviously while I'm seeing the power numbers, I also know how I'm feeling. Whereas an external coach, you may send the file to them, but they don't know how they, how you were feeling. So in order to put proper context on it, of course, that's what many coaches are going to want to know. And then it's the, the coach's job is to sort of have to filter through, uh, you know, how much weight to place upon the person's subjective uh, words versus the objective data. Mm-hmm. You know, they're performance objectively could be perfectly normal, but they could be telling you that, you know, they're having problems at work and that the workout felt terrible. And so as a coach, you'd have to want to, you know, take that into consideration and, you know, make sure that you don't turn the screws and send this person into a tailspin uh, because of external stresses, as an example. The other consideration is, I mean, uh, you know, the saying is, um, Training is testing. Testing is training. <laughs> both the uh, both the beauty and the danger of having a power meter on the bike is that you're being tested all the time. And some people get test anxiety. Mm. Uh, another way of putting it is, you know, it's uh, the power meter. She's a cruel mistress indeed. <laughs> Sometimes we would joke about it and refer to it as the suckometer. It's like, just what I need. I'm going out to ride. I'm having a bad day. And I've got this device on my (laughs) handlebar that is telling me, you suck. Yeah. You suck. You're just terrible. Give it up. Quit the sport. Sell all your equipment, right? Right. So depending upon the athlete's psychology, uh, you know, that can play havoc with them. Uh, You know, part of that is, you know, you say uh, psychology. I've never formally studied it, but I would uh, embrace it in the sense of I think people, they live up to or down the expectations you put upon them. So, mm-hmm. you know, if an athlete is not inherently mentally strong, if they're new to the sport, or if you have evidence that they're not, you know, uh, a tough case, it may require uh, coaching mentally about how they should deal with expectations, how they should deal with failure, et cetera. Um, so, you know, there's upsides and there are downsides. Yeah, and I think that's the, I think a good coach, regardless of what we're talking about, takes those into account that some days, and, and to let the athlete understand some days, some, you know, some, dude, you just, some days have a bad day. I mean, you know, it happens best thing you can do is forget about it and move on because nothing you can do about it maybe learn from it why was it a bad workout oh well you know i was up late the night before you know work kept me up or 
you know, I was stressed or I was binge watching Game of Thrones or whatever it was that I was up doing. I got to remember not to do that or else, you know, especially on a, on the day before a hard day or, oh, I didn't hydrate very well the day before. I didn't eat very well the day before and learn from it. But at some point in time, you just got to move on and go, hey, walk away from it. Forget it. I, I, I remember reading a quote, Tiger Woods, when he was young, he said one of the strong, one of the best things a golfer can do is have a bad memory. And where it's, yeah. you got to forget that last shot because nothing you can do about it. You know, I mean, you know, within the context of I've got to hit another one in a, you know, in a few minutes here and I got another workout tomorrow. Sure. You learn from it, but don't dwell on it and blow it out of proportion either, which high performance athlete or even, and not even high performance athlete. I think just highly dedicated athletes, whether they're a cat three racer who just wants to get better. Oftentimes like that and we'll focus on the, bad days rather than remember there are also a lot of good days leading up to that too and you know tend to be highly self-critical yeah all right we'll bring a sports psychologist in to finish up this discussion at some point in time i'll bring in kristen diefenbach for that part of it for sure um maybe we talked about some misuses there maybe what are some of the best uses that uh, a coach or athlete can use uh with a power meter and that data Well, aside from the motivational aspect, I mean, I guess it actually is segueing on uh, a mistake people can make is assuming that a power meter is a bolt-on motor, <laughs> quote Chris Mayhew. <laughs> you know, just putting a power meter on your bike is not going to make you faster. But if you change your training in response to the new knowledge that you have, then you at least have the potential of improving. Mm-hmm. And therefore, that's that's then leads into, you know, what are the positives? Um, the ability to link what you do in training, how you train and how you perform, where performance is far more objectively quantified than, well, did I just beat my buddy Joe in that field sprint or didn't I? Right. Mm-hmm. You, if you really embrace the power data, uh, many times it's not about the placing. You know, unless you win the race, it's kind of like, what's the point? What's your goal going to be? Well, you know, you can walk away saying, well, I just finished mid-pack in the field sprint, but I had my highest normalized power for two hours ever. I know the fitness is coming on. Yeah. So you have a success even though uh, when they put up the list of placings, you're just a uh, you know, pack fodder. Um, so having objective data, objectively measuring your performance, understanding the link between how you train and how you perform, and then you know, more big picture, also looking at your overall training load. Because again, uh, if it works all the time the way it should, we have tools for better or worse in terms of you know, their precision. Uh, but nonetheless, tools exist for quantifying the overall training load and making sure that you don't make training mistakes, such as you know ramping up your training too rapidly or just trying to do more than you're capable of doing and getting sick or broken down or lose enthusiasm as a result. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, part of the, the answer to your question, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very much a big picture person here, is that to my way of thinking, uh, as you approach it, you know, the questions I, I ask, you know, what are the demands of the event? What are the mm-hmm. characteristics of a given athlete in the context of the demands of this event? How do you best prepare this athlete for this event? You know, what are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? What do they need to work on? Or, you know, you could also ask, should they even be doing that event? Um, but then I, it becomes a, a constant cycle. What are the demands of the event? What are the current characteristics of the athlete in relation to the demands of the event? Yeah. Why, you know, how should they be training, et cetera? Um, another way of putting it, to relay Jim Martin's argument, or perspective. He was saying that you're constantly making decisions. You want to think of it as a flow chart in a computer program. You're constantly making decisions. And the data that the power meter can provide can help a whole myriad number of those positions, uh, decisions. You know, should I work on my sprint? Should I work on my endurance? Should I train more? Should I train less? You know, I'm interested in a time trial. Should I, you know, lower my handlebars four centimeters in order to get more aerodynamic or does that compromise my power too much and I won't gain back what I might uh, benefit, et cetera. So there are just uh, 
almost innumerable applications in which you can actually use the data. And it really just requires having the, uh, I don't know if it's the imagination, the perspective to hone your question and then say, okay, how do I answer this? Um, it well, does, does big gear training work, right? <laughs> well, you could approach it from uh, you know, the basic physiological perspective or you could be purely empirical and say, okay, I'm going to go try it for six weeks. Well, if you do it for six weeks, and at the end of six weeks, you don't see any evidence in your own data that you're getting better, then who cares what you know the most respected coach in the world says, or even who cares what a published scientific paper might say? You know, because at the end of the day, it's an n equals one. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And important point is that those studies are looking at averages. You have responders, non-responders, and and now. The argument for the people who love the bigger training is if you do it six weeks, it doesn't show improvement is, well, you didn't do it long enough. That's always the answer to these folks who have, you know, you mentioned the keto diet earlier on there. Well, you know, the joke is that adaptation takes at least one week longer than whatever study that they did. And I'm thinking the same thing along those lines. I had a similar discussion with somebody not too long ago. Uh, in that area just didn't do it long enough I'm like oh, I don't have the rest of my life to do it um, with that All right, I want to wrap up I'm conscious of your time here and um, kind of my original question that I sent you was you know what sort of have you learned between the first edition and the third edition but maybe even let's go back to when you first started delving into into this on the Usenet groups you know, maybe what have you sort of maybe change your mind about or really learn more about from those early days till now that you guys have the third edition of the book out? Oh, that's easy. And you're going to recognize the answer right away. Specificity, specificity, <laughs> specificity, 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 which I've trained my son who's, well, he's now 12, but for at least uh, the last two years, he's been able to say that and explain it. Um, no, I mean, I, you know, I've, I've been studying exercise physiology since I was a junior in high school. Uh, of course, you know, I've been exposed to the concepts of overload, progression, reversibility, and specificity. Mm -hmm. But it never really hammered home how specific the adaptations to training can be until I actually slapped a power meter on my bike and saw in my own, you know, my own eyes, for my own self, uh, just how powerful of an influence, pardon the pun, specificity <laughs> can Now, with that said, sometimes people carry it too far. And they lose sight of, you know, physiological determinants of performance. And they think that, well, because my race is four hours, I have to train four hours. Right. Um, that's that's an uh, excessive application of the specificity principle. Mm -hmm. But number one, num nonetheless, I would say that was the, the number one thing that I learned. Yeah. Uh, of course, and that was number one, to take it all the way back to rec bicycles racing. And those days, once upon a time, it was on a different forum. I posted my David Letterman top 10 list of things I've used from uh, uh, using a power meter. And that worked its way all the way down to actually uh, number three was specificity. Number two was specificity with an exclamation. And number one was specific, specificity, bold, underlined, exclamation, italicized or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I, 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 I think you had that slide in the, in the power clinics. In, in some form, you had that. Um, yeah. put in there so I, I distinctly remember that slide yes <laughs> uh, other things I learned for myself were you know uh, I needed to you know I I didn't benefit from losing weight you know every time I lost weight either intentionally or unintentionally my performance tended to decrease hmm. anytime I actually gained weight uh, I tended to perform better um, I learned uh, how to rest more and appropriately for races I cared about. Uh -huh. uh, Very good. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, for many years I was chasing a Masters National uh, TT title. Yes. And I build my season around that, and I would only use local races for training purposes and didn't really care. And then I, you know, felt disrespected. So one year I'd said, "I'm going to win the bar. I'm going to win the the best all rounder in what used to be District 20. Now it's Mid Atlantic Bicycle Racing." Mm -hmm. So focused on all of the local races, and 
adopted a pattern that worked really well. If it was a criterium, then I would rest completely two days out. And it's rare for me, at least back then, to not ride, right? Mm-hmm. But I, two days out, I would not ride at all. The day before, I would do you know the leg openers. And between you know, those two, I'd feel snappy on race day. If it was a road race, I would train two days before, and I would take the day before off. And while you wouldn't necessarily feel quite as snappy when you had you know two hours of racing, you didn't want to be overly rested, right? So that became the the uh, template. That was the playbook. And again, I knew I could show up on race day and you know be ready to go, and was able to be competitive from you know the very first races in. Uh, April to you know the very last races at uh, end of the season in September. Mm-hmm. Uh, any any parting thoughts on on power that you want to share with folks that we didn't get to here that I didn't ask you about? Well, I think it would be not to overcomplicate things. Okay. Which is, you know, I'm I'm one of these people who is, you know, very interested in minutia, mm-hmm. and much of the data that's out there, many of the algorithms that are out there could be. I don't know if it's minutia, but the underlying uh, basis for it is, you know, to fully understand it requires a knowledge base that many people do not possess, mm-hmm. so that. For some, it can be, you know, intimidating. If I had to do it all over again, uh, this was actually the advice I gave to Hunter early on when uh, he and Kevin were putting together the program, and I think I was officially involved by that point or not or whatever. But the point was that if, if, if he made it tied too closely to his coaching philosophy, mm-hmm. no one would buy it because, uh, you know, other coaches aren't going to want to use his coaching philosophy, right? So right. the program was at least trying to be flexible and agnostic. Mm-hmm. And then that has been amplified many-fold in WKO4, where if you know how to you know, write the, the syntax for the expressions, is extremely powerful program. Mm. But downside of this is it's like you know taking somebody who just wants to do a little bit of photo editing and throwing Photoshop at them. Mm-hmm. There's so many bells and whistles and complexity that, it, you know, their eyes glaze over, they throw up their hands, and they walk away. Yeah. So if, if I really wanted to help the average Joe and Josephine as opposed to just entertaining myself and scratching my own intellectual, intellectual itch, I think I would actually now, I would black box it. Mm-hmm. it like, here it is. It's, you know... Behind the curtain, it's doing it for you. You don't need to know. Just follow the recommendations. You'll be okay. No. Right? <laughs> because I think that will, of course, there'll be people who are curious and people who are critical and people for which that approach would not work. But sure. in terms of the masses out there, you know, most people are not, you know, they're not buying a bike and they're not buying a power meter because they like the navel gaze. Mm-hmm. They're doing it because they want to get faster. So if, in terms of you know, the greatest uh, swath of the population that you would impact, I think that we maybe have gone too far. Uh, nonetheless, it's been a fun ride. <laughs> yeah, it has. And it's, it's, uh, it's been fun to see the growth of it and the interest in it has, has sustained. And it is, it is a powerful tool. And, and like I said, it kind of, to some extent, you can, you can dive as deep into it as you want to, or you can kind of keep it very much on the surface. Uh, you know, a, a good coach friend of mine that, you know, you know him well, I'm not going to uh, say his name, but uh, very much looks at it, you know, okay, here's what it is, doesn't really get into all the stuff that's going on behind the curtain. Um, he takes the information that he needs and has used it quite effectively with athletes who have, who have performed at a very high level. And um, and he figured out how to use it to you know in his own coaching system and methodology that is um, that may be different than hunters. I never sat down and had the two of them discuss it back and forth, so I can't be sure. But certainly has his own coaching philosophy along with that. So um, good. All right, well Andy, I want to thank you for your time. I appreciate the chat and um, 
you know, let's uh, not let it go so long between our next conversations, okay? Even if we're not recording right. it. <laughs> okay. All right. Sounds good. All right. So thanks again for joining us, and I uh, hope you guys took something from this, and hopefully you'll go out and use power. All right. Take care, Sam. You too. So once again, this is Sam Callen, your host of the Smarter Coaching Podcast. Uh, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any questions or comments, you can email me at smartercoachingllc at gmail.com. Thank you very much. Have a great day.